It's the holiday season, and for the third year in a row, we're bringing in one of my favorite guests. He's a living legend in the world of ufology. He's first ballot Hall of Famer. There's no doubt about that. He, he's just the man. So big, in fact, is the holiday special that I actually dragged our mysterious voiceover man back into the studio to tape a special holiday introduction for the show. So, you know, we we go all out here. It is December 23rd, 2007. There's not much to say here, folks, at the beginning. It speaks for itself. It's the third holiday special. We've got Stan Friedman back again on the program to talk about all things ufology. He is, of course, the co-author of the new book, Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. And pretty much he launches into a massive dissertation at the very beginning of the interview that is awesome. Covers a ton of huge points in the Betty and Barney Hill story before I can really even ask him a question. I was just like, whoa! He started rolling out tons of great stuff on Betty and Barney Hill. I just let him keep going because that's how we roll here on BOA Audio We give Stan Friedman the floor, and he pretty much just tears the house down, and it is just amazing to sit back and listen. Obviously, there is some discussion later on in the interview. We're going to talk about ufology history, especially the immediate post-Condon period. we got a lot of great stuff in there, and where things went wrong for ufology. This is really some fascinating insight. Some great science-related material, too, as well as he's going to talk about the whole issue of skeptics saying that studying UFOs requires repeatability, He completely decimates that argument. Tons of little details about the Betty and Barney Hill case. More insight from Stan on pilot shootdowns of UFOs. And a lot of discussion on his next book, which he's calling his magnum opus, that's going to be titled UFOs and Science. So, it's amazing. It's Stan Friedman. He's back here on the holiday special. For those scant few in the audience who are unfamiliar with Stanton Friedman, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Stanton T. Friedman received B.S. and M.S. degrees in physics from the University of Chicago in 1955 and 1956. He was employed for 14 years as a nuclear physicist for such companies as GE, GM, Westinghouse, TRW Systems, Aerojet General Nucleonics, and McDonnell Douglas on such advanced classified, eventually canceled projects as nuclear aircraft, vision and fusion rockets, and nuclear power plants for space. He has provided written testimony to congressional hearings, appeared twice at the UN, and been a pioneer in many aspects of ufology, including Roswell, Majestic 12, the Betty Hill and Marjorie Fish star map work, analysis of the Delphos, Kansas physical trace case, crashed saucers, flying saucer technology, and challenges to the SETI, silly effort to investigate cultists. He is the author of the books Top Secret Magic and Crash at Corona, the definitive study of the Roswell incident, and he is the co-author with Kathleen Martin of the new book, Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. 
His website is www.stantonfriedman.com, S-T-A-N-T-O-N-F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N.com. And, without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded December 19, 2007. Stanton Friedman, talking about the Betty and Barney Hill case and ufology on the third annual BOA Audio Holiday Special. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very special edition of Benall of America Audio. It's the holiday season. Earlier in the month we had Hanukkah. Christmas is right around the corner. Kwanzaa, I'm not sure about the date, but I'm sure uh, someone will write me and let me know. Um, but it's December, it's the holiday season, and of course, for the third year in a row, we're bringing in one of my favorite guests. He's a living legend in the world of ufology, first ballot Hall of Famer, there's no doubt about that. He, he's just the man. And uh, as I said, it's the holiday season, so I'm thrilled to bring him back here for the third annual BOA Audio Holiday Special. He has just released a new book, co-authored with Kathleen Martin, and the title is Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. So, without any further ado... Stan Friedman, welcome back to the BOA Audio Holiday Special. Thanks for coming back on the show. And delighted to be here again. <laughs> oh, also, I wanted to mention you were honored by the city of Fredericton this past year, and you received the Lifetime Achievement Award from MUFON, so a big year for you. And uh, as we see yeah. here with the new release of Captured and another upcoming book soon, Flying Saucers and Science, you're not slowing down at all, so I'm excited about that, too. Well, I'm still an optimist. Uh, my parents both lived to be 89, and I'm only 73, so we've got plenty of good years left, he says. And actually, uh, you might as well do it while you can, is my feeling. Uh, this would be my magnum opus coming up, but uh, I still haven't spent overnight in the hospital since I was born, and I don't remember that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, it's, this was a very busy year, being on Larry King, you know, and all that stuff. Um, the uh, response to the book has been very good. Uh, and I had there was something I hadn't realized, uh, hadn't thought about it particularly, because I was interested in UFOs before I met Betty and Barney, which I did back in uh, '68, before Barney's death, of course. Uh, and I was the first to publish the star map work and all that, but. I'd become interested by reading Edward Ruppelt's book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects. You know, he was head of Project Blue Book back in the early 50s and mm -hmm. all that. But uh, when I was autographing books at the MUFON conference, I realized that because so many people said that that was the story that got them interested. Oh, wow. Uh, they'd read uh, John Fuller's book, The Interrupted Journey. And they, many of them talked about seeing the articles in Look Magazine. There were two by Fuller back in the mid-60s. And then they saw the television special, The uh, UFO Incident, starring James Earl Jones. And people may not realize that was uh, 75. But back then, that was on NBC. The networks ruled the roost. So when you did had a show on on one of the three networks, an awful lot of people would see it. Yeah. Uh, e even as late as '89, when Unsolved Mysteries, also on NBC, did a program on Roswell, 28 million people saw it. So you know the Peter Jennings mockumentary of uh, February 24th, <laughs> 2005. I insist on calling it that because it really. It really was a mockumentary. But anyway, that was only seen by 14 million people because the cable networks have jumped into the fray. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it got a lot of people interested. 
the Hill case, I, I suppose because John Fuller had done such a fine job. And to me, everybody asks me, so what's so special? So it's another abduction. Well, it was the first abduction case to get seriously investigated and reported on. It wasn't the first abduction, of course. Yeah. But uh, as reluctant as people are to report just a UFO sighting, you can imagine how they felt about reporting something that, you know, missing time or an abduction. And most people don't remember the abduction part, not all, but most don't. So it was, uh, it really broke new ground. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that Dr. Benjamin Simon was quite unique. You know, people think, ah, oh, well, what's different? Uh, so somebody used hypnosis and the skeptics would say they just implanted uh, their notion of how things are, and we can't believe any of that stuff. Well, Dr. Simon treated thousands, and I mean that literally, of World War II veterans who had suffered from shell shock. Today we'd call it post-traumatic stress syndrome. Uh, they didn't call it that then. But, you know, there were 12 million guys in the military, and he even directed a hospital after the war that had 3,000 beds. Oh, wow. And so he worked out techniques for having people who'd had terrifying experiences, uh, which sometimes they couldn't recall the details of, but they were strongly handicapped in how they dealt with the world. He worked out medical hypnosis techniques uh, to get them to relive those experiences. And there's even an army movie, Let There Be Light, starring him. This is done right after the war, showing his techniques and his uh, how useful they were. And nobody else had the same success rate. So he didn't know anything about flying saucers. And maybe that's to the good in this case, although my first reading of the book said, why didn't he ask this? Why didn't he ask that? <laughs> <laughs> but he wasn't interested in, in finding out about flying saucers. He was interested in having a rather special couple find out what happened during a missing time period of two hours. And I say very special, uh, you have to go back in time a little bit. Barney was black, Betty was white. Now, in 1961 in New Hampshire, that was quite unusual. Uh, you know, there were states that still had laws preventing interracial marriage oh, wow. back then. And as a matter of fact, in the, in the television show in uh, 75, and I was a consultant on that show, that was the first time I was told that on television you had a black man and a white woman in bed at the same time, huh. same bed. Now, uh, they were talking. <laughs> Nothing was happening. But, I mean, uh, what, what I'm saying is that shows you how times have changed. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Betty was a social worker. Barney worked for the post office, but he was very active in community activities and in the civil rights movement. And so was Betty. So this is a very well-respected couple with rather different backgrounds. Betty's family came over. I've seen the genealogy. It's about three inches thick, way back in the 1630s or so. Uh, her mother uh, lived in the same house in which she was born. Uh, she knew who she was, you know, and, and everybody knew who she was. So you put those things together, and you have a recipe for a challenging what's the word I want, exciting story that you can't make sense out of. And you can imagine Dr. Simon 
and he did it in, the, in his treatment of them. And, you know, there have been a lot of false impressions given. Carl Sagan in the Cosmos story uh, made it sound, he talked very briefly about the star map, make, made it sound like in that story and in the, uh, an article he wrote for a Sunday supplement, like there was one hypnosis session. Six months of separate sessions with the two of them, each done separately, taped, and amnesia induced after each session, so they couldn't talk about it. And he was bound and determined to show that really Barney was picking up on Betty's dreams after the event. He didn't uh, doubt that they had seen a flying saucer, some kind of strange thing out in the sky, but he tried to push them in the direction, not of having had an alien abduction, quite the reverse, of not having had one, and only, uh, you know, Barney picking up on Betty's uh, dreams. And what Kathy did that's so important here, now Kathy is uh, Betty's niece, mm-hmm. and has been active in ufology for a decade. She was in charge of uh, getting investigators tested and all that from MUFON. Uh, so she's been around the UFO scene. She's trained in sociology and education and stuff. And she set out to do a comparative analysis, which you won't find anyplace else. Kathy had all the tapes. Um, to see whether, indeed, what Barney said under hypnosis was the same as what Betty wrote in her dream reports. Yeah. And it wasn't. And so uh, it comes across. I had talked to Dr. Simon. And I had been very impressed with Betty and Barney, and I got involved. And I know I've heard some people say, what do you mean? He's the guy with Roswell. What's he doing with an abduction case, you know? Yeah. Well, I did meet them back in 68. I've been in Betty's home a number of times. We did television programs together. I was a consultant on the – I'm still laughing uh, – on the uh, – uh, NBC show, Universal Studios did the UFO incident, and would you believe they got my name from the United States Air Force? <laughs> oh, wow. I was living in Southern California, and uh, after Blue Book was closed in late 69, early 70, anybody who called the Air Force about UFOs, uh, the local installations were told to refer people to a scientist in the neighborhood, so to speak. Yeah. And I was it. I was living in Southern California. So, And the reason... Uh, my primary role was that I had been called by Coral Lorenzen of the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, which like NICAP, but they, they were the two major groups back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, NICAP was Major Kehoe, and uh, APRO located in Arizona was the Lorenzens. And Coral had called me because she paid more attention to abductions and to observations of aliens. Uh, Kehoe's views seemed to be, and I was a member in ICAP, but it, it seemed to be that, hey, uh, there are these uh, alien vehicles flying around out there, but don't talk about anybody being on board. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. But Carl was much more open to that. And so she called me and said, look, there's this woman named Marjorie Fish who has visited Betty and is trying to make sense out of the star map that Betty described. She's building three-dimensional models of our local galactic neighborhood, and she wants to talk to a scientist who may be able to help her communicate or to check on her work or whatever. Are you interested? I said, sure. 
So I made contact with Marjorie. I met with her in Ohio during one of my lecture trips, and uh, she sent me a bunch of information. I introduced her to Jay Allen Hynek over in Chicago, made a presentation. I helped explain her work in the, at the MUFON conference in 73, I guess it was, uh, 74, because I wrote the first article with the late Bobby Ann Slate about Marjorie's work in Saga Magazine. Everybody remembers Saga, I'm sure. Anyway, it wasn't a, it was a good article. Bobby was a good writer. And, uh, if I couldn't explain anything to her, then we weren't going to use it. So she made it passable. I mean, I'm the physicist. I was working, you know, solidly then. And so, uh, I got involved. I not only wrote the first article and helped Marjorie in her presentations, but I convinced uh, Terence Dickinson, who's Canada still is Canada's finest astronomy writer, written several excellent books about astronomy, the backyard astronomer, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. For 20 years, he wrote a column in the Toronto Star, the uh, highest circulation newspaper in Canada. A uh, weekly column. Can you believe? <laughs> I know it's work to do a monthly column <laughs> for yeah. the Newfound Journal. But... And so I convinced Terry. We had met uh, after I gave a lecture up in Rochester, I guess it was. And uh, I sent him a copy of the Saga article, and we had met uh, on another occasion. He did an article. He was editing Astronomy Magazine, which is still around. He isn't the editor anymore. And so he wrote an article for Astronomy Magazine about Marjorie's work. He talked to a lot of independent people, uh, other astronomers. was particularly pleased that he talked to Dr. George Mitchell, who was head of the astronomy department at Ohio State University. He was helpful to Marjorie, unlike most academic astronomers. (laughs) And uh, it was hard getting data on stars because the star catalogs couldn't be checked out of the library. She had a hand copy, all kinds of numbers, you know, coordinates and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And uh, Terry introduced, uh, interviewed uh, George Mitchell, who stressed how accurate her work was. His students had gone over. They used one of her models which had 256 stars in it, as a teaching tool. Oh, wow. Uh, and so uh, he even uh, agreed to appear and did appear in a documentary movie, not mockumentary, documentary, <laughs> UFOs Are Real, which I did way back in 79. And in it, we interviewed Marjorie Fish at her place. And uh, then by then she'd moved to Oak Ridge, I guess, National Laboratory, kind of job at Oak Ridge National Laboratory through somebody I knew. And uh, we also interviewed Betty in New Hampshire. And we interviewed uh, Dr. Mitchell in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, I think there's still copies around of UFOs are real. But the point is that uh, Terry's article was extremely well done. And it got more response than anything they had ever published about any subject. Wow. And some of it was negative, of course. The nasty, noisy negativist will always be present. Mm-hmm. Uh, my University of Chicago classmate Carl Sagan was among the leaders of the anti-star map pack. Uh, and it was kind of amazing. Over the next year, they, he, Terry published, I think it was 11 letters from different people in response to the article. 
and then uh, they put together a 32-page full-color booklet, the Zeta Reticuli incident, and the name has meaning, which I'll get to in a minute. And they sold 10,000 copies of it almost immediately, which is unheard of for this kind of thing back then. And they, this booklet, full-color, fancy, heavy paper, uh, had Carl's name and several other names of contributors on the cover. And his attorney threatened to sue Astronomy Magazine, I guess on the basis that, well, people will think I believe in flying saucers or some such nonsense. And the editor who died of a brain, not the editor, publisher, who died of a brain tumor less than six months later is a young guy, under 30, uh, caved in, which was very uncharacteristic of him. So they made me an offer I couldn't refuse, and I wound up with 18,000 copies. Nice. <laughs> nice. That was in my garage in California. We moved them here, and unfortunately, I sold them all uh, two years ago. I ran out. Boy, would that make a great companion. For, yeah, that would be <laughs> cool. Captured. And, you know, what was interesting to me was, uh, among other things, was, was that everybody who attacked Marjorie's work misrepresented what she did couldn't get their facts straight, including Carl, which came as a bit of a surprise. Now, maybe people are wondering, what the heck is he talking about? Star map work, 3D models. Let me give the, the, what, what led to this. Mm -hmm. Betty under hypnosis, after she's reliving the experience, and Simon was entirely, it was reliving, you know, not just reciting. Yeah. Uh, She's describing how she's trying to get the leader of this 11-being crew on board this saucer that had flown near them for some time and then finally, for some reasons unknown, and I think it's because they influenced them mentally, uh, Barney pulled off the road, main road, to a secondary road, then to a tertiary road. This is in the middle of the night in New Hampshire coming from Montreal to Portsmouth, which is on the Atlantic coast. Uh, it's that little bit of New Hampshire between Maine and Massachusetts. Yep. They were heading home, nobody around, and that's where they got picked up. And uh, Kathleen and I were there a couple of years back for a really stupid English television program, <laughs> <laughs> which was really bad. Uh, anyway, uh, the title will give you the idea. I had sex with an alien. How's that? Oh, boy. <laughs> And they put uh, put that over my name in a listing. <laughs> I've never seen an alien. I've never had sex with an alien, etc. But anyway, uh, Betty asks the leader of this crew. She says, uh, "Where are you from? I know you're not from around here." The understatement of the month, you understand. Yeah. And uh, he shows her a what I can only describe as a hologram, a three-dimensional model, points of light which stood for stars with lines between them. There were heavy lines for heavy trade routes and solid lines for uh, lighter trade routes and dashed lines for occasional expeditions. She's looking up at this thing. It's like two feet by three feet by two feet. And she's looking up and she says, well, where are you on the map? He's described that those are stars and trade routes and so forth. Mm -hmm. And wise guy alien says, well, do you know where you are on the map? No, I don't know anything about astronomy, she said. She's a social worker. Uh, well, how can I tell you where I'm from if you don't know where you're at? Uh, end of discussion. Now, you can yeah. picture what Dr. Simon is thinking. <laughs> this is going on. 
And he asked Betty if she can remember the map accurately, and she can, and he gives her a post-hypnotic suggestion. If and only if she can remember it accurately, please draw it later on. Now, I wish he'd asked other questions, but at least that he went that far is pretty remarkable, yeah. given, what is this crazy star map, aliens? You know, we, <laughs> we start, we're in really deep trouble here. Anyway, she draws it, it's in the book, left as a question mark. What does it mean? Well, that's where Marjorie came into the picture. She visited Betty. She was dubious because Betty and Barney described the aliens as more or less humanoid. Two arms, two legs, a head and a body. I mean, they wouldn't have passed for things, maybe in New York, but, you know, <laughs> uh, they, they weren't, but they weren't science fiction monsters is the point. Yeah. And she had trouble, Marjorie had studied uh, biology. She was a school teacher, but she was a member of Mensa too. Very bright, very objective, uh, really nice woman. And, um, so she visited Betty, asked many more questions, and wound up building 26 different three-dimensional models of our local galactic neighborhood. Now, the point here is that she was trying to find, ask a, she asked a question, is there a three-dimensional region of space around us that is echoed in this map that was drawn in two dimensions? Betty said it, it was really three-dimensional, had depth to it was the phrase she used. So Marjorie built these models with beads standing for stars and fish line, nylon line, uh, hung from a frame so that the stars would be in the right three-dimensional location. That means you've got to copy out an awful lot of numbers for where the stars are. Yeah. And the difficult part of this was the distance data. This is late 60s, early 70s, you understand. And the astronomers weren't going anywhere. Uh, and you only need uh, two angles to aim a telescope at a particular star. And whether it's 20 light years away or 30 light years, it didn't matter. But if you're building a model and trying to get a three-dimensional picture of what's going on, you'd better have good distance data. So that's why she built so many models. And she gradually, she thought she'd get a lot of, of matches, if you will. Mm -hmm didn't get any. And then a new catalog came out, the Wilhelm Gliese catalog of nearby stars with the best distance data at that time that had ever been compiled. And she rebuilt the big model and there, to her delight, was the pattern. Angle for angle, line length for line length. And so, there, you know, it raises a question. Did the story happen? Well, if it did, then there ought to be meaning to stuff and we ought to learn something new that we didn't know, that nobody knew before mm -hmm. the story took place. Yeah, and that's the star map. Yeah, and nobody doing what Marjorie had done before the experience in 1961, September 19th and 20th, or the book came out in 66, could have come up with the right uh, identification of the stars because we didn't have the good distance data. Now, I should add, parenthetically, that the European Space Agency launched the Hipparcos satellite back a number of years ago, and it made millions of measurements of the distance to nearby stars. It's off in space up there and uh, not bothered by the planet or the atmosphere. And so uh, it's the best data we've ever had. And I was talking to Terry Dickinson a few months ago, 
And we both agree that Marjorie's work has stood the test of time extremely well. Uh, and the, here's the exciting part of this. this. Her work tells us which stars are in the pattern. Now, all of the pattern stars is a total really of 16 of them. Uh, are the right kind for planets and life. Mm -hmm. And all the right kind for planets and life in that very well-defined three-dimensional volume of space are part of the pattern. Now, only about 5% then, now it's a little less than that, because we found a lot of stars we couldn't see back then, small stars and so forth. Uh, about 5% at that time were the right kind for planets and life. So it's no coincidence if only 5% are, are sun-like stars, and all the ones in the pattern are those, and all of that kind in the region of space are part of the pattern. That's not a coincidence in other yeah. words. And so it tells us the names of all those stars, and most of them aren't a surprise. Uh, some of them are everybody's list, but... Um, Tosetti, for example, Epsilon Eridani, and so forth. But the exciting part of the story, uh, a couple of exciting parts. One, all the stars in the pattern are in a plane. Uh, by that I mean, think of a very large, very thin pizza with pieces of very thin pepperoni slices on it. As opposed to, say, a big fat loaf of raisin bread, which has raisins all over the place. Now, that is helpful if you're traveling. Uh, you don't have to get out of the plane. As a matter of fact, our own solar system, the stars, uh, the planets, are pretty much in a plane, uh, which is kind of neat. Yeah. And the base stars, and there should be a flourish of trumpets, were Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 reticuli, the constellation of reticulum, which means the net in Latin. I looked it up. I don't speak Latin. <laughs> What's special about these two stars? They just happen to be the closest to each other pair of sun-like stars in our entire local neighborhood. The sun is out in the boonies. Next star over 4.3 light years. These two stars are 39 light years from here, but they're only an eighth of a light year apart from each other, and they're a cool billion years older than the sun. Mm -hmm. So from flying around one, looking over at the other, you can see the other star all day long. And they're 35 times closer to each other than the sun is the next star over. So there would be a real incentive for interstellar travel when you got a neighbor. Yeah. And that changes the situation. So it's a very exciting piece of work. And uh, I'm very pleased to have been the first to publish about it. And I want to kind of get your perspective on the mood in ufology uh, as this Hill story was starting to surface. Because you were there, like you said, you, you first kind of heard about it. it was in your gray box. And then you met Betty and Barney and, and, and did more research into it and, and moved into the acceptance uh, area. Yeah. I guess just sort of talk about what was going on in ufology at the time when that sort of thing broke. Because, you know, there was the nuts and bolts versus the sort of contactee movement thing. And like you said, NICAP wasn't really, they were a little more, uh, you know, straight and narrow, if you will, and APRO was kind of, they're all right with looking at, at being stories and stuff like that. Yeah. Give some perspective for people here now in 2007, almost eight, on what it was like in the UFO field then when this uh, captured story really broke, because they weren't even called abductions back then, it seems. No, they, they weren't called abductions. That was uh, 
too, what's the word, provocative a word. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it, things changed, of course, with um, Bud Hopkins' book in 1980, Missing Time and stuff. Uh, there were, uh, unfortunately, just as now, there were different factions in ufology. And Donald Kehoe and Carl Lorenzen apparently didn't like each other, and their newsletters would take swipes at the other one. Kehoe was based in Washington, so there was more of a focus on he had insider contacts and stuff like that. And there were a lot of units of NICAP. It was a more proactive group than was APRO. Uh, there were groups. I was part of a group in Pittsburgh, uh, the, um, what do we call ourselves, the Western Pennsylvania Subcommittee of NICAP. We eventually dropped out because, and set up our own organization, UFO Research Institute, because Kehoe was a controlling guy. He wanted to say what we could say. Yeah. And we didn't like that because we had established, our group in Pittsburgh had a lot of professional people in it. So many of us worked for Westinghouse. There were other people. We had monthly meetings at the boardroom of the biggest accounting firm in Pittsburgh. You know, yeah. respectable. And so we wanted our own group. We uh, we found that we could do our own thing. And the big thing was that we could convince the press to treat the subject sensibly. I, I got started lecturing because of a last-minute call from a radio station in Pittsburgh whom I had called uh, – and it was one of those, uh, they had a talk show called, appropriately enough, Contact. <laughs> and uh, it, it was on KDKA, which is one of the oldest big radio stations still around, 50,000 watt clear channel. And uh, I had gotten the name of the person to talk to from Frank Edwards, whose book, Flying Saucer, Serious Business, as an indication of the mood, was a bestseller. Frank was a newsman, known widely. He was on the board of NICAP and stuff, and he sent me – I had been living in Indianapolis working for General Motors, one of my many canceled government-sponsored research and development programs. <laughs> that was my specialty, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, and he sent me a copy of the book when I moved to Pittsburgh to work for Westinghouse. I asked for people to contact because I wanted to go public. He gave me the name at this contact radio show, and their response to my calling was, don't call us, we'll call you. Less than a month later, they called me. and. Uh, because <laughs> because somebody had canceled at the last minute. Yeah. This is this is six thirty for a seven o'clock show, and I lived close enough to the station to be able to make it. <laughs> this is how careers get started. Somebody yeah. at work heard me, asked me to speak at her book review club, which was looking at Frank's book. That was my first lecture. I did that same contact show many times, and our group got a lot of good publicity. The point here is that something interesting happened. I got my first copy of the Condon Report from the people at KDKA. They called me and said, we're going to be getting a copy. we let you have it if you'll agree to appear on a show a few days later. Mm -hmm. Didn't tell me it was 965 pages long. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so I got it. And what was interesting was because we had established ourselves with the press, they carried a very fair response from us in response to the Condon Report. I mean, I'd read the darn thing. And you can't uh, – th there's a moral of this story. If you will treat the press right, give them facts and data, and when a UFO turns out to be an IFO, let them know. Mm -hmm. And never say anything you can't 
back up and never lie to them. We we had a good group of people. And so I try to take that attitude in other places. And unfortunately, I think we have too many apologist ufologists. What do you mean by that? Well, people who, well, J. Allen Hynek was one. I heard him speak on a number of occasions. He'd always apologize at the beginning of the lecture for talking about this far-out subject. <laughs> because, gee, uh, I don't want you to think that I believe in this, but it's interesting and it's possible that uh, at some point something interesting, good might come out of it. He wouldn't dare to say extraterrestrial, and he wouldn't. I was there when uh, an astronomy department chairman at UCLA in California introduced Alan before his lecture and made a number of derogatory comments, not about Alan personally, but about the subject. Yeah. And Alan didn't respond at all, unfortunately. Yeah. Would you say that was like the point of view of the NICAP people or just him or, or, or just like a whole well, part of the field at the time? More, no, Kehoe would come out for extraterrestrial, no question about it. Uh, and this was later uh, in the early 70s with Alan. But in the 60s, uh, there was a lot of interest. That's why we had a Condon study in the first place. Yeah. Uh, because, remember, what happened in the mid-60s was swamp gas. Yeah. Alan was right in the middle of that about some sightings in Michigan that he said, and I, I better defend him, he didn't say it was swamp gas. He said it could have been swamp gas in one of these cases over a swamp mm -hmm. near Hillsdale, Michigan. Well, the cartoonist went to work on that one. I think there were over a hundred cartoons done in his dishonor on that oh, man. <laughs> he had a good sense of humor, but he'd been burned, in other words, and so he was being very careful. But the fuss about that, and Frank's book after that, there was a lot of interest in the subject. There were a lot of good reports, the Heflin photos and others. The press wasn't nearly so negative. They could be convinced that something might be going on here. And that's why it was kind of a shame that, uh, you know, not a lot of good came out of that. Uh, we had the congressional hearings in 1968 where uh, a dozen of us scientists provided testimony, six in writing and six more. Uh, now, when was the last time we had uh, congressional hearings? That was it. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, where do you think things went wrong? With the Condon Report? The Condon Report had an enormous influence, yes, because the press, you know, they did this with Blue Book Special Report 14 back in 55. Biggest study ever done. The press picked up on what the Air Force said in the press release, which didn't even mention the name of the organization that had done the work, didn't use any of the data from the report itself, included a, a total lie from the Secretary of the Air Force, and nobody asked the right questions and so forth. That was in 55. Well, in 69, uh, with the Condon report, the press read Condon's summary and conclusions. They didn't bother to read a 965-page <laughs> book. And Condon was very negative. And so the press coverage was devastating. Uh, and they didn't, they didn't point out, as has been pointed out since, that 30% of the 117 cases studied in detail could not be identified, according to a UFO subcommittee of the world's largest group of space scientists, the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. And so NICAP's membership, which had been up around 14,000 at one time, believe it or not, dropped precipitously. Yeah. Uh, APROS as well. And NICAP actually had paid employees, if you can believe that. Oh, wow. 
And a couple of them are still around, Dick Hall and uh, Don Berliner still around. Uh, and, you know, their budget went to, the, to heck in a handbasket, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And the press, because there wasn't this vigorous response, and something else happened, too, that I think, well, James E. MacDonald was the one who I consider the best ufologist ever. And there's a book, a Firestorm, by Ann Druffel, and the subtitle is James E. MacDonald's uh, Search for uh, Scientific Respectability About UFO, UFO Science, I guess was the term he used. Mm -hmm. Jim, we knew Jim, he would stop by Pittsburgh, and he took uh, Hynek to task severely, because when he visited Project Blue Book, MacDonald, he was astonished that there were so many good cases that had been misidentified or not examined carefully or anything like that. And he couldn't understand why Heineck hadn't alerted the scientific community to those cases. Yeah. And it was Jim who pushed the congressional hearings. And he had a tragic suicide in 71. Uh, if he had gone on to write a popular book, which Alan did, which is a good book, and I recommend it at all my lectures, The UFO Experience, uh, in the early 70s. But it went wrong because the leadership hadn't been provided as far as I'm concerned. I was just a young squirt at the time, I must admit. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, used, I used to remind Heineck that uh, he was the same age as my father. Oh, boy. <laughs> I sure <laughs> love that. Uh, yeah. And, <laughs> you know, what can I say? Uh, so it, it, the Air Force Project Blue Book got away with uh, murder, you might say, and and it was many years later before, and I remember I was the first one who told Heineck about it, at a MUFON conference in California about 78 or 79, uh, I had gotten a copy of a memo from General Carol Bolander, Air Force General, who whose memo to the Air Force was responsible for the closing of Project Blue Book. He had been working on the uh, lunar excursion module. We landed successfully in 1969, the summer, and his first job after that was to, what should we do about Blue Book? Because Condit had recommended that it be closed. It wasn't contributing anything. And they're all agree with Condit. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and so Bolander, in this memo, uh, reviews the situation, and he did recommend it be closed. And he's pointing out if we close Project Blue Book, there may be consequences. But he said, Moreover, reports of UFOs which could affect national security are made in accordance with Joint Army-Navy Air Force Publication 146 or Air Force Manual 55-11 and are not part of the Blue Book system, which is a shocking statement. And a couple of paragraphs later, he's saying if we close Blue Book, the public won't have a place to report sightings. However, as previously noted, reports which could affect national security will continue to be investigated using the procedures designed for regulations designed for that purpose. Hmm. And now think about that for a minute. Yeah. We've never been told that, oh, the good stuff didn't go to Blue Book. And when I showed that to Heineck at this MUFON conference, he was angry because basically it said he'd been used. Yeah. He thought he was getting the good stuff. And he wasn't. I mean, the kind of thing we're talking about, and I located Bolander, incidentally, and talked to him on the phone, very sharp guy, and he meant what he said. Uh, suppose a saucer flew down the runway at a sack base 
where nuclear weapons were stored. Oh, wow. That's a national security problem. Yeah. I've heard two accounts like that, incidentally. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, what you and I might see at the end of the driveway flying out across the, the fields, that's not a national security problem per se. So but, they get the good cases. Uh, yeah. yeah. And Blue Book didn't get the good cases. So uh, we didn't have the leadership, and Kehoe was closed-minded about uh, abductions and Nobody had done enough work on physical trace cases back then. Ted Phillips had started, but not enough. And, you know, I, I've just been reading a statement by uh, Michio Kaku that was on the UFO updates. Uh, it's not a blog. What do you call it? Interest group, I yeah. guess. <laughs> uh, and, you know, astronomers are a different breed. And one of my chapters in my book uh, deals with SETI and where saucers might come from and all that sort of stuff. But astronomers aren't tuned into the real world of technology. And it, it, what surprises me, and in my chapter on you can get here from there, I talk about nuclear fusion. Now, every astronomer knows that the processes that produce the energy in the stars are nuclear fusion. Yeah. That, that's what's going on there. And yet, none of them seem to be aware of studies on fusion propulsion systems. Matter of fact, Alan Hynek told me that he had asked uh, various professors, uh, is there any way to use nuclear energy uh, for propulsion? And they all said no. This despite the fact that we tested nuclear fission rocket engines in the 60s. And I worked on a fusion study in the early 60s. And the guy in charge had been head of the fusion work at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, incidentally. Uh, John Luce, outstanding guy. Probably the brightest guy you ever worked for. He had a high school diploma and an honorary PhD. Oh, wow. And 40 patents. Oh, wow. In the esoteric world of uh, ion sources and uh, the vacuum systems oh, and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, John was something else. But uh, the reason I mention that is, uh, that's the stumbling block that seems to face most astronomers. And the rest of the astronaut, the rest of the academic community picks up on that. Yeah. Hey, the astronomers say it couldn't be, therefore it isn't, and I don't need to do any work myself. I'm too busy with important research, none of the saucer junk. <laughs> yeah. That actually segues well to a point I have here in the notes, and uh, you really kind of devastate this argument, if you will. Uh, Sagan originally put it forth. I'm sure he didn't originally put it forth, but that's sort of who you cite. And it's that reproductibility as the essence of science and how that's yeah. sort of used as a crutch by the, the nasty, noisy negativists, if you will, uh, for yeah. why we can't look at UFOs. And, and you really devastate that whole argument in the book. Um, talk a little bit about that. I, I was at his home. We were classmates for three years. We're the same age. Well, I'm still alive, but uh, I'm four months older than he was, something like that. And we were in the same classes for three years at Chicago. So I was visiting. I was going to be lecturing at Cornell, and the guy in charge was in Carl's department. He was the advisor to the UFO uh, club of Cornell, would you believe? <laughs> it's surprising that they had one. But anyway, so he took me from the plane to Carl's house, and we had coffee and cookies and so forth, and that's where Carl said something to the effect. I mean, we're cordial to each other. Well, mm -hmm. why not? Uh, and that's where he said something about reproducibility being the essence of science. So... We talked about that briefly. It was a relatively short meeting, but we had a lot of subjects to cover. But I wrote him a letter afterward pointing out, uh, he wrote me on the same day that I wrote him, which is interesting. 
um, pointing out that there are several different kinds of science, and they don't all involve reproducibility. I mean, yes, of course, it's nice if you have an experiment, you set it up in the lab, you control all the variables, you take data, you have it peer-reviewed, it gets published in a journal, hopefully somebody else does the same thing and can get the same results. That's very important. We need that, not only in astronomy or physics, but in medicine and a lot of other areas. Yeah. However, that's only one kind. A second kind, and certainly Carl knew about this, is where you can predict, but you can't control. Now, if I were to tell somebody, a noisy negativist, that, look, you know, every once in a while, the moon comes between the Earth and the sun, and it gets dark down here in the middle of the day. Ah, oh, come on, that's nonsense. <laughs> Tomorrow morning, I'll, you show me, and I'll have, take pictures. I don't believe you. Well, it's not in my power to adjust, you know, to reproduce the situation, yeah. to control it. Uh, we can predict it, and hopefully we'll have cameras and the weather will be okay and all the rest of that, but I can't reproduce it. Uh, there's a third kind uh, where you can't predict and you can't control, but where you can make measurements anyway. At Chicago, over at Stagg Field, where the first nuclear chain reaction was conducted, uh, they did play football there at one time. Uh, they had a balloon ready to launch with a block of nuclear emulsion hung from it. If we had a signal indicating that there was a solar storm, because the uh, X-rays and the gamma rays get there with the speed of light, we could send this up because the particles are much slower and hopefully recover the balloon and this block of nuclear emulsion and learn the mass and velocity, energy, and so forth of the particles. Can't predict can't control, can be ready to observe. Think about earthquakes. Mm -hmm. you, you set up your seismographs, and uh, you know, I can't make one for you, but I can be ready to observe it. Yeah. Then we come to the fourth kind. That's what we're interested in. That's where you can't predict, you can't control, you can't observe at the time because you don't know where they're going to happen. Things that involve intelligence. Yeah. We're talking, or that's in quotes, uh, rapes, murders, automobile crashes, mm -hmm. airplane crashes, UFO sightings. You have to make do with asking questions in a scientific fashion, reserving judgment, gathering data, automobile crash. 40,000 people will die in the United States this year, roughly, of automobile crashes. Now, I can't tell you where, who, or when, mm -hmm. but I can measure uh, alcohol levels in the blood of the driver. I can check the brake linings, look at the skid marks, see what the visibility and the weather conditions, and take eyewitness testimony. Bank robbery is the same thing. You know, now if somebody says, well, he was the robber was six feet tall plus or minus 20%, that's not very useful because it covers most of the population. But if you say the object was sitting still in the sky and then moved straight up and then stopped and moved off at 8,000 miles an hour, now whether it was... Uh, 90 degrees vertical or 75 doesn't matter. You know, and whether it was 6,000 or 10,000 miles an hour, we've just described something that's outside the normal. And when you have multiple witness radar visual cases and so forth, uh, you can, uh, Jim McDonald did this in his congressional testimony. He had 41 separate sightings, including a number of multiple witness radar visual cases. 
when you got the whole crew of a reconnaissance plane that spent two hours with a saucer nearby, where they picked up signals from it, and where their radar indicated it was there, and ground radar saw them and the target, uh, yeah, I can't make it happen tomorrow because I can't bring the saucer back. But I can be scientific in how I approach the evaluation collection of the data. Mm -hmm. So that was my point to Carl, and it's a point that isn't made often enough as far as I'm concerned. Exactly, yeah, it really stood out in the book to me. I was like, uh, well, good. I, it's kind of argument we need against the negativists who use the reproductibility argument constantly as a crutch against the UFOs. So it was, uh, it'll come in handy, I'm sure, in the long run. Oh, another point I want to ask you about, just to sort of dive back to the Hills case, is just uh, the whole betrayal aspect of their story, how I found it kind of interesting, for starters, just to, to look at how different times were back then, because, you know, they wanted to keep the story quiet, but they were talking to NICAP people, Air Force people, their friends, a couple of the UFO groups. It was like, you couldn't get away with that in this day and age. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> it, it, no. Wouldn't, people would find out in a heartbeat. The rush to publish first uh, would be amazing. Uh, remember, no Internet back then. Exactly. Don't I guess just talk a little bit about sort of how that thing exploded on the scene. And uh, as a side thing, did this Luterell character who wrote the uh, the Boston Traveler article, did he ever regret his decision or apologize to the Hills? He thought he was I, – I talked to him once, and he certainly didn't want any more public discussion about the case because of the job he was in, PR for some outfit, and uh, he didn't want to jeopardize, <laughs> you know, uh, that's, it's funny because that's funny because the overwhelming response to these articles in the paper, which were not 100% accurate, was very favorable. Yeah. You remember Betty and Barty wanted to squash it. He called them, wanted to interview them, and they said, no way, Jose. Yeah. And they talked to lawyers to see if there was anything they could do, and there wasn't. Somebody had given them uh, him a tape of a private talk that they had given. And so... Uh, they were afraid, literally, of losing their jobs. Mm -hmm. And uh, Barney, was, because of his activities in the civil rights movement, really was concerned about that. I mean, how effective could he be in a civil rights movement if he was being held up as a some kind of idiot who'd seen a flying saucer and been taken on board and seen alien beings? you got to be kidding, you know. And so uh, when the story did come out, uh, it turned out that the response was uh, extraordinarily good. And that's what led, not too long thereafter, when John Fuller showed up. He'd already written Incident at Exeter, or was working on it at the time, which is another fine book. Exeter is a small town in New Hampshire, mm -hmm. not too far away from where the hills I mean, New Hampshire isn't the largest state around. Yeah. And uh, so they worked out an agreement, finally, uh, where... Between the four of them, the Hills, John Fuller, and uh, Dr. Simon. But one of the kickers was that Simon would have final say on everything. He was the professional. Remember, he was a psychiatrist with a Harvard background, a Boston practice, a colonel in the Army during the war, ran this 3,000-bed hospital. Uh, this was a... Pretty high up the ladder there, so to speak. Yeah. And I've seen his notes. Uh, I've, the papers, uh, Fuller is dead and Simon's dead too. Fuller's papers are at the Boston University Archives. And I've seen Simon's comments on manuscript sections and wow, 
he meant no words. You can't say this. This would make <laughs> us look stupid. You can't say that. I, I don't know how Fuller put up with it. It's probably a better book because of it. But I'm sure. I mean, I'm working on a book now, and I, I don't think I'd want somebody telling me those things. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the attitude of people toward Betty and Barney was good. Now, it's very unfortunate uh, Barney died in 69, February 1969. Mm-hmm. And so Betty bore the brunt after that. And she had her own views. She liked to think of herself as a UFO researcher. She took people to where she saw lights at night and said, there are the saucers coming back. She was very skeptical about most abduction cases because medical hypnosis wasn't used. She was, uh, she accepted the Travis Walton case, I might add. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she went off and left field a little bit to a lot of people. And I know in one case, she showed pictures at a meeting in New York taken with a Polaroid camera, and there are lights moving around in the sky, seemingly. These were stills. And I asked her for some information about the camera, and she didn't know. So I talked to Polaroid, and it turned out that particular model was used by artists because when it's dark, the lens, uh, the shutter stays open for many seconds. Ah. And so what you're getting is movement of the camera, not movement of the object. Yeah. And she hadn't done any of that, so she really wasn't an investigator, but the pictures helped convince her that she was seeing something extraordinary uh, or didn't see something. I mean, she saw the lights, and look what the camera shows, and cameras don't lie. So she didn't pull a phony or anything like that. She just didn't understand what was going on. And Kathy, you know, Kathleen Martin knew about the case the day after it happened, not about the abduction part of it. But she was there when Betty called Kathy's mother, Betty's sister, Mm -hmm. the very next day. And so she saw the marks on the car. You know, there are these peculiar marks. We still don't understand why a compass goes went wild on those. Wish we had the car to check today. Yeah. We don't. Uh, And so Kathy got a little dubious with all these other things going on. And so when Betty gave her the tapes, she transcribed them all. And it turns out that John Fuller hadn't used all the information that was on the tapes. It turns out Simon asked the same questions, sometimes three or four different ways. Yeah. And so looking at things from a different perspective, that was a standard approach to doing this kind of thing. There's a lot in the book that you will not have seen before, yeah. no matter if you read The Interrupted Journey. Absolutely. There's a tremendous amount of uh, tons of new material in the book. Um all right, well, another question I kind of have for you, and it's a great segue from what you're just talking about with the interrupted journey. And you point out in Captured uh, that the interrupted journey, it's been out of print since around 88. Why do you think the Hill story kind of fell out of the popularity loop, if you will, uh, eventually? I remember back when I was a kid in the 80s, um, you know, the Hill case was like a staple of paranormal anything. You know what I mean? It was like the number two, three, four story that you'd get if someone was going to do paranormal special or books or magazines or anything like that. Why do you think the the Hill case fell out of the loop, if you will? I I think it's a couple of things. One, uh, let's face it, there were new books about abductions. Bud wrote several books. Dr. David Jacobs wrote several books. Mm -hmm. Uh, there There was newer material to chew on many different cases. Remember that the Interrupted Journey talks about one abduction case. Yeah. 
And now most of these other books will mention the Hill case at some point along the way. But there was a lot of stuff going on. So, you know, newer is better, right? Latest model. <laughs> All that kind of thing. Also, uh, Betty uh, wasn't doing much anymore in the media kind of world. She'd done quite a lot over periods of time. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there was no reason for people to focus on it. And, you know, the interrupted journey, I mean, the uh, UFO incident, the television movie, is still not available on DVD. Wow. And, uh, you know, if it was, I'm sure it would sell extremely well. But uh, I approached uh, James Earl Jones, who had the movie rights, but he doesn't anymore. And I dealt with somebody who's close to him, and so he's not involved. I mean, I think what would be great is if Oprah had James on and maybe Kathy to talk about the story. Uh, wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> yeah, well, they got to get you then, too, for sure. So, Well, it would help the book sales, that's <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I should add, incidentally, the book is listed on Amazon, of mm -hmm. course, and Barnes and & Noble and all that. Or they can get it uh, from me or from Kathy. And if you get it from us, you get both signatures. We signed a thousand book plates. Nice. And that you won't get from the stores. So I'm all in favor of people buying books from stores. Uh, but I'm just saying that uh, you can uh, – my website, which we haven't mentioned, www.stantonfriedman.com, uh, has a link to Kathy's website as well. And uh tells you how to get the book with PayPal or send a check or whatever. And also has my other books, uh, Crash at Corona, The Definitive Study of the Roswell Incident, and Top Secret Slash Magic about the Majestic 12 documents. Boy, you want controversy. <laughs> There's still a lot of that floating around. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you can grab those books uh, and find more information at www.stantonfreeman.com. Capture's got great uh, distribution. I see it all over the place at my Barnes Noble and Borders and stuff, so I'm, I'm psyched Good. to see that. I want to just touch on one element of new information that came out in the book. Maybe, I don't know, it might have been an interrupted journey. I'm not sure because like, it's been out of print, so I haven't been able to get my hands on it. And that's this pile of dried leaves uh, slash earrings that were found on yeah. the table about two months after the abduction on uh, November. I guess just talk about that thing because that's totally bizarre and, and jaw-dropping uh, when I read it in the book. Yeah, there are a couple of those things that happened. Uh, Betty with uh, her arm in a cast, and somehow the cast was, this is many years later, of course. Mm -hmm. It appears that uh, the aliens were paying attention. I don't know of a, a better way to say it. Uh, now, everybody knows, if you, you read Bud's books and David's books and so forth, that uh, there seemed to be, for many people, more than one abduction and even to have it run in families, so to speak, parents and then children. Mm -hmm. And I, I talked to a Canadian abductee, and she had an encounter with, I asked her the question, you know, why you? Because she wanted to know, too. And she said uh, something to the effect that something about me I was easy to track. And remember in the conversation between Betty and the aliens, they said that uh, she wanted to introduce them to people who knew about astronomy on the planet. <laughs> yeah. And they said, uh, we can find you. We'll be able to find you. So it appears that the aliens have, whether it's these implants that people have talked about. I mean, you can buy commercial devices about the size of a BB that you can insert in an animal yeah. and will respond to a transponder. 
you know, name rank serial numbers, so to speak. It's being used with cattle and with pets and no reason why it couldn't be used with people. And if we can do that already, then somebody with a little more advanced technology than ours can yeah. certainly do it. So it uh, appeared that uh, these guys, aliens, sort of call them what you want, these strange characters from Zeta Rodeo, <laughs> were keeping track and did something to show their presence. Now, there's another part of this, and this came home to me when I was at the crash, at the abduction site, not the crash site, uh, with Kathy. When you're there, it seems perfectly obvious that Barney would never have gotten off the main road onto a secondary road, and off the secondary road to a tertiary dirt road at the yeah. time. It's, it's paved now, but, well, there was the, that's the one area, this is a very heavily wooded area near Lincoln, New Hampshire. And uh, there was a place big enough for the craft to set down, sandy area. I, I don't know why. Um, and so clearly they were able to mentally control the behavior of Betty and Barney, especially Barney. He was driving. Mm -hmm. And so if you can do that action at a distance, you know, we put a gun to somebody's head, a knife to their throat, et cetera. The aliens seem to be able to telepathize, if I can use that word, or to read our minds, or whatever you want to call it. So they may have been checking. I had the feeling, when you read the accounts, and I've listened to a couple of the tapes, incidentally, and that's pretty strong stuff. As a matter of fact, Dr. Simon had said to Jim McDonald that uh, the emotional intensity in a couple of those sessions, it was greater than that with any of the Shell Shock War veterans. And coming from him, yeah, that's pretty strong stuff. So uh, what I'm getting at here is that apparently the aliens were able to contact, and I presume it's sort of a two-way street. Now, whether they put a uh, transponder in either one of them or not, I don't know whether they had a peculiar signal. Can you imagine what the response would have been from the first guy who said, you know, I can measure electrical signals from a brain? Yeah. How loud would the laughter have been on that one? There's no battery there. What are you talking about? <laughs> that seems to be an aspect of this whole business. And incidentally, can you imagine how concerned governments would be in trying to find out more about that? Wouldn't it be great if you could get a half an army to lay down its arms with a mental message? Hmm. <laughs> well, I'll just sort of like uh, give the thumbnail on the story, which is that uh, they had gone out, they came home, in the middle of the tables, this pile of dried leaves, and, on, and inside <laughs> is Betty's earrings that she was wearing the night of the, of the yes. abduction. And uh, this is two months after the abduction, way before... The story became like massively popular. I mean, only a handful of people really kind of knew what what was going on with the hills yeah. at the time. So we can kind of rule out, you know, uh, wacky, crazy people who would have broken in and done it. But did anything else ever come out of that, or or anything? No. Just sort of like uh, just a weird anomaly that adds more mystery to the whole thing. That's about all it was. <laughs> that, that's one of the places where you wish that uh, Dr. Simon had pursued that a bit more. You know. Yeah. Uh, can they remember what happened to her earrings? Uh, does she remember taking them off? Or, I mean, how do you get earrings off? And normally have to take them off, don't you? Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's strange that they turn up like two months later, too. It's really bizarre, yeah. really a weird one. 
I had the feeling that the, the aliens hadn't done a lot of abductions before this. You know, maybe this is the first time around for the professor in his class. I mean, I love that part where they pull on Barney's teeth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they seem definitely uh, a little at odds with the human element when they abducted Betty and Barney, and, you know, they couldn't work the zipper on uh, Betty's dress. And the whole thing with the teeth, it was very, it was very strange. It has a whole, whole lot of elements to try and figure out what they're all about. And, but it did have the ring of truth, didn't it? Who would yes. make up a story like that? Yeah, because if you were going to make it up, that, that kind of stuff wouldn't even get into the story because you would think that it wouldn't be believable or something like that. That's but right. But it makes it even more believable when you think about it. To jump to uh, kind of like I was saying how the Hill story sort of fell out of the loop, uh, you're sort of interested in, and I'm, I've really become really interested in strange things that have kind of fallen out of the loop in a way. And uh, I was talking to you before we did the interview about Keith Chester's book about the Foo Fighters, which I'm just raving about lately. And I know that you're kind of interested in another element to that historical aspect of ufology, and that's the whole shoot them down yes. uh, story. Um, let's talk a little bit about that, because I know it's one of the big things that you've been interested in in the past few years. Well, yeah, Frank Faschino Jr. and I got together a few years ago at a conference, and he'd been working on the Flatwoods Monster case, but all in uh, sort of quiet, like he would use a false name when he sought information and so forth, and I finally pushed him to, you know, you got to write a book, Frank, and so forth, and this one is his second book because I was intrigued by all the plane crashes in 52. Somebody had objected to the stories in the Braxton County Monster. The publisher had done a lousy job, hadn't corrected a hundred and some errors that oh, Frank had spotted and listed, and he just let him go right on through. And so there were people who were saying that uh, – Gee whiz, there were no dog fights between saucers and uh, aircraft and so forth. So I asked for help from David Rudiak and Barry Greenwood. If they had any more clippings about the, the Flatwoods monster case was September 12, 1952, right after the sightings over Washington, you know, and all big fuss in 52. So they came up with lots of articles, huge collections, and Lo and behold, there were the articles where the Air Force instructed its pilots to shoot them down if they don't land when ex ordered to do so. Yeah. And you start looking around, and, gee, the New York Times and Washington Post didn't say that. And then also, uh, Frank found, uh, the New York Times included over 200 accounts of military interceptors uh, crashing between 1951 and 55. And sometimes the words disintegrated and disappeared were used. And three of the pilots were people who'd had over 100 combat missions in Korea where there were MiGs trying to shoot them down. Yeah. They survived that, and they come back to the States, and they crashed. Also, uh, General Ramey, the same Ramey from the Roswell case, but now he was a major general, made a public statement that we'd scrambled them hundreds of times. And I hadn't known a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Because it wasn't in the Times and the Washington Post and so forth. So Frank's book goes into that. And I have heard over the years, the other side of the same coin, uh, seven different accounts of planes going up after UFOs and not coming back. If I've heard seven, I mean, yeah, I've been around a long time. But still, if I've heard seven, there's got to be a lot more than that. I wouldn't have heard of them all. Mm-hmm. And these weren't people seeking attention. Believe me, they weren't. Yeah. They might approach me after a lecture quietly in a corner kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a whole 
aspect of the whole situation, we're getting back to uh, General Bolander. Apparently, these are reports which could affect national security. Now, I know some people say, what do you mean, Stan? Planes got shot down by UFOs and the families didn't know about it? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Uh, there's a wonderful book called By Any Means Necessary by William E. Burroughs, B-U-R-R-O-W-S, published in 2001. And he recounts the stories of 166 military crew members of Air Force planes that were doing reconnaissance approaching North Korea, uh, China, and Russia, mostly in the late 40s, early 50s. None of the families were told. These planes were shot down. None of the families were told. Unfortunate accident, it's a body not recovered. It seems that the Russians would have grabbed some of these guys and tortured them because we weren't going to say anything publicly because we were violating international law. Yeah. And they weren't going to say anything publicly either because we shot down some of their points. <laughs> but if you got 166 guys whose families were told nothing until they had a big meeting in 2001 and gave medals to the families. So a few other airplanes, and I, I've got one guy I've got to follow up on. He had told the buddy, he's dead, but he had told a friend of his from college when he came back from flying in Europe, Germany, in the early 50s, that we had lost 20 planes to UFOs. Oh, wow. And Tim Good in his new book suggests some of the same things. Huh. Need, need to know, I guess, is the title of Tim's book. So... What I'm saying is this is an aspect of the whole problem that hasn't been considered, and it's why I recommend Frank's book, Shoot Them Down. And I wrote the foreword and the epilogue for it. And we'd certainly like to hear from crew members who knew about planes not coming back. Oh, sure. I mean, I don't expect to hear from the guys who didn't come back. <laughs> but oh. You know what I'm saying. Yeah. So, uh, And my address and so forth are on the website, www.stantonfriedman.com. I'll give out my email address, FS for Flying Saucer, PHYS for Physicist, at Rogers.com. And I do normally answer email. Not so good about snail metal. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's tough nowadays. Now, this is a question somebody sent me after last year's Christmas special, so uh, I, I kind of filed it away to make sure I asked you this year. And in the last couple of years or so, it seems, there's been a, a rebirth, if you will, in the argument behind the ETH theory, as the kids like to call it, uh, extraterrestrial hypothesis, which you seem to be a big fan of, versus the whole multiple dimension theory and all the other various theories that go along with where yeah. the UFOs are coming from and what they're all about. I guess, what are your thoughts on the ETH hypothesis versus the other ones? Are you open-minded about those possible multiple dimensional ideas, or are you pretty much uh, solid on the ETH thing? Well, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Yeah. I would be uh, totally astonished if an advanced civilization hadn't figured out how to warp space and time, if they can figure out uh, telepathy, let's say, and probably reincarnation and all this other stuff that we call paranormal. I mean, I can't imagine an advanced civilization only being concerned about nuts and bolts. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the problem comes from the fact that I worked on advanced propulsion systems like nuclear fusion and fission and so forth in large-scale programs where the data was classified and that most academics have never heard of and aren't aware of. So I have an, an unfair advantage. Furthermore, I worked under security for 14 years, and I've been to 20 archives. So I know governments can cover things up. There are loads of examples 
big programs, multi-billion-dollar-a-year programs that we didn't know about for 30 years. Uh, the Poppy satellite, the Corona satellite, you know, there were a number of these. And the stealth uh, airplane, 10 years, $10 billion before there was a word in public. So I can't see a problem with the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Now, remember, uh, unlike Dr. Kaku, who started a program we did by saying, gee, it's taking an awful lot of energy to get to the next galaxy. I don't worry about the next galaxy. Yeah. That's uh, Andromeda's 2 million light years away. Okay, I'm worried about down the street, 39 light years away. Yeah. There's a big, enormous difference there. Mm -hmm. So I am not a fan of the others as the primary explanation. If Whether they're warping space and time to get here or using a big old fusion-powered mothership, it doesn't matter. They're from someplace else coming here. Now, how you get here is really beside the point, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, when you boil it down. Yeah. Uh, I can't build one. Uh, nobody's <laughs> going to fund me to build one. <laughs> but I do have an appreciation for how much technology is represented, especially by these mothership reports. Mm -hmm. Half-mile-long object in the sky? Wow. Yeah. That's impressive, you know. And, <laughs> Look, if I had told uh, a naval hero 200 years ago that we would have nuclear-powered aircraft carriers that can go for 18 years without refueling and carry 75 high-performance supersonic airplanes, he'd have tossed me in the loony bin pretty darn quick, wouldn't he? I'm afraid so. <laughs> Well, let's talk about your, as you already have called it, your magnum opus, uh, and probably what we're going to be talking about on next year's holiday special, if hope you will. So. Um, oh, I, I hope so too. Um, and that's the next book you got coming up: Flying Saucers and Science. Um, I guess talk about it. Why is it your magnum opus? It sounds like this is going to be uh, amazing. So uh, let's hear all about it. Well, look, over the years, I figure I've answered over forty thousand questions. I've lectured at six hundred colleges, well over a hundred professional groups, done hundreds of radio and television programs, and I get asked lots of questions. And people have no trouble accepting the data I present. Facts are facts, you know. But they always want to know the why questions. Why the cover-up, for example? Yeah. Uh, why would aliens come here? Why don't the aliens land on the White House lawn? And so I've tried to put together into a book, which gives me much more space than a 90-minute lecture or a 10-minute interview or even a 90-minute interview, try to get it all together in one big fat volume. And uh, it's time that I did that. You know, not that I'm saying I'm going to die next week because I'm very healthy, but only that I, it would be a shame if I didn't put it all together. Yeah. Put it on record, so to speak. And look, I can come down, I don't have a boss to worry about except me. Yeah. So I can do a whole chapter on uh, the cosmic water gate, uh, which the subject represents. I can talk about uh, the cult of SETI. Uh, you know, which will make some people mad, but what the heck? I'm sorry. The facts are what they are. Mm -hmm. It's not science. It's belief systems. I, I think it's hilarious that many people say there is no evidence for UFOs. They got no evidence. There's anybody out there sending a signal of any kind. <laughs> yeah. And 
we got tons of evidence, the five large-scale scientific studies that I talk about in my lectures, and I know a lot of people in ufology aren't aware of those studies, so I think it's time to put it all down. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm really looking forward to it, because the why questions part of uh, your other book, Top Secret Magic, is one of my favorite chapters in, in that whole book. Uh, I, I go back and read that a lot, so um, um, it sounds sure. like this is going to be an expansion of that whole thing, so I'm yep. looking forward to it. When, when do you think people are going to be able to pick up uh, Flying Saucers and Science? Oh, late May. All right, nice. Sounds good. And that's, that's what they tell me. Who knows? The book business is crazy. Yeah, that's through New Page Books, right? Yes. Awesome. Yeah, they're the same people who published Captured, and they surprised me. We submitted a proposal because by contract agreement, I have to give them first crack at my next book anyway. Mm -hmm. And uh, they said, well, let's see how Captured does. And then two weeks later, hey, we decided to publish it. Awesome, awesome. That sounds great. I'm really looking forward to it. It sounds like this one's going to be just a home run book. Have you ever thought about doing an autobiography at all? I've thought about it, and I try to let little autobiographical dribs and dribs uh, into my books, uh, which surprises some people and pleases others. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've thought about it, but you know, a book I'd like to do after this one is—it's impossible, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> With all the crazy claims that have been made by the ancient academics and fossilized physicists about what's impossible that turn out to be quite possible. Yeah, yeah. And how many such claims are being made today? And how much progress has been hindered by the big shots saying it can't be done who don't know what they're talking about? Exactly. Yeah, you do a good job of pointing that out about the uh, the trip to the moon and all the various people that said it couldn't be done and, and all their crazy estimates on what it would take to put, put somebody up yeah. in orbit and stuff. That's <laughs> uh, a very entertaining part of the book. Yeah, I ask about the autobiography because just in some of the interviews that you and I have done talking about, you know, the, the UFO field over the years and stuff and even the uh, the foreword or, or the introduction here and captured there's a lot of autobiographical stuff in there that I was just like loving, you know. So I would, I think right. it would be a great book to uh, to put out. There's not too many people who really talk about the history of the field and what was going on at the time and stuff. And, and you've got a, you had a great window on on the evolution of ufology through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Now, I highly recommend it. You should definitely do it. Okay, <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. Definitely, definitely. I'll I'll, I'll be just elated if uh, if that comes together. What do you have coming up on the horizon for 2008? Uh, you know, speaking engagement. Anything you want to mention or plug, well, specials and stuff, uh, let's hear it. I should mention that the Aztec UFO Symposium, Aztec New Mexico, is going to take place in uh, toward the end of March, and I'm excited about that. I've been there before, but uh, uh, Scott Ramsey has done an awful lot of good research on that, and uh, I'll see the guys again, and I always like going to New Mexico anyway. Yvonne. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 Smith has a new book coming out uh, about abductions, and she's going to have Kathy and I at uh, the Cerro. Oh, that's a long thing. Um, she has a, a an abduction group in Southern California, and mm -hmm. so at the end of April, that'll be out there. I'm sure there'll be publicity for that. I'll, I'll put all this on my website. Yeah. And I, the people in Roswell have told me they want me there. We don't have any specifics lined up yet. It's a little early, but uh, so I expect to be in Roswell again, and uh, last year was the 60th anniversary, so I don't suppose there's anything special about 61st. <laughs> <laughs> now, I know you went to China a couple of years ago. Any big international trips or anything like that? Not at the moment, although I, I've intentionally not tried to book any lectures the last few months. I want to work on the book. Yeah. 
And then when it's done, then we'll start trying to book some lectures. I mean, I can't sit still. <laughs> yeah. Just to sort of jump on the China thing, what other countries would you like to go to that you haven't got a chance to go to yet? I mean, have you been to Japan or? Uh... Japan is one. Now, I've been to Australia several times, Brazil, Argentina, Mexico, Finland, uh, France, Germany, Italy, Israel, Turkey, England, Scotland, Ireland. Uh, I'd love to speak in Russia, for example. Uh, yeah. Poland guy did a long interview with me, and that was interesting. And uh, so uh, Japan would be high on the list. I enjoyed China. Love to go back. Uh, I was to uh, Hong Kong and Dalian, which is in northeastern China. Uh, I've spoken in Seoul, Korea. Uh, there's a lot of interest out there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm I'm trying to get into uh, the Japanese scene, find someone to talk to, have on the show. So I'll throw your name out there to tell them to bring you over to Japan okay. when, I, when I get a hold of someone to talk, someone from Japan to talk okay. to. Well, Stan, uh, I just I gotta thank you so much, not just for coming on the show, giving me some extra time here for the interview. I really appreciate it. Uh, the book captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience. Stan co-wrote it with Kathleen Martin. It is outstanding, my friends. It is an amazing book. It really talks about the whole evolution of the Betty and Barney Hill story, gives a great biographical sketch of Betty and Barney Hill. You're going to learn so much more about them as people. I was stunned to find out so much about Barney's civil rights work. Uh, It sounds like he did just a tremendous amount of civil rights work in the time, and I never heard that kind of stuff. Um, I'd only been really vaguely familiar with the UFO uh, abduction story of Betty and Barney Hill. This book will give you a tremendous education on the whole thing. I can't put it over enough. It's from New Page Books. As Stan said, you can find it just about anywhere, any bookstore. You can get the autographed copies through Stan's website, www.stantonfriedman.com. Stan, like I said at the beginning, you're a living legend. Uh, I love having you on the show. I always look forward to the holiday season because I know we're going to be taping the holiday special, and all my listeners are always, you know, we're looking forward to it. I get emails all the time about it. You know, you're going to have Stan back for the holiday special this year, right? Of course I am. So uh, it's great to have you back. Uh, I had a great time talking to you, and um, hopefully we'll be we'll be doing this again next year to talk about flying saucers and science. My pleasure. Happy holidays. That does it for the third annual BOA Audio holiday special. I can't thank Stanton Friedman enough for coming back on the show, for embracing the whole holiday special atmosphere of the program. He is the man. His new book, Captured, is outstanding. I can't put it over enough, as I said in the interview. It is great, great reading and a very personal look at a major UFO story. Of course, you can find out more information on Stanton Friedman at the website, www.stantonfriedman.com. Definitely check it out. Moving right along. It would be time for BOA Audio listener feedback, but since this is the holiday special, I want to give a little feedback to all the great BOA Audio listeners and wish them a very Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and a festive holiday season. We'll bring back listener feedback next week and in further installments. Don't you worry about that. The mailbag is piling up as I speak, so you know how to get a hold of me, boaaudio at hotmail.com or via the BOA website. And, of course, we extend super huge thanks and a very Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays to the tremendous BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., and Tina Senna. You guys are the best, and I could not do what I do without the outstanding BOA staff. So thank you very much to all of them, and may they have a very Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. I'm excited to announce we'll be adding a new member of the staff, in 2008. More details to come on our impending new edition 
to BOA, a fantastic writer who will be joining the staff in the not-too-distant future. We'll cut back on the plugs this week, folks. You know we need your help to keep the show and the website up and running. You know how to do that. You either buy stuff from the BOA store or make a donation via PayPal to BOA. Next week on the program, we're going to close out 2007 with a major superstar in the world of Esoterica. The extremely popular Nick Redfern will return to BOA Audio to discuss his latest book, Memoirs of a Monster Hunter. We did two hours worth of awesome material covering a ton of ground, a lot of big picture analysis, a lot of cryptozoology discussion, a lot of sociological discussion on just the various fields and what have you. It's a great episode. I know many people are going to dig this one. That's Nick Redfern talking about memoirs of a monster hunter. And I'll give you a fair warning now. Following that episode, we'll be taking our annual winter hiatus, probably for three or four weeks in January. And we'll be back with new episodes at the end of that month. I'll have details on all that, of course, next week at the end of the program. And on that note, we don't have anything left to talk about, folks. It's the end of the show. Once again, big thanks to Stan Friedman. Big thanks to the BOA staff. Big thanks to all the great websites who help promote the BOA brand. Talking about The Anomalist, Daily Grail, UFO Review, About.com, all the various blogs that have been instrumental in helping us get the word out on the series. Big thanks to them and a very Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to all those great folks. And, of course, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to all the great BOA Audio listeners. You guys are the best. Come on back next week, Nick Redfern. Until then. Have a fantastic holiday season. This is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off. <laughs>